uh, knowing you is uh, our greatest treasure. And knowing you is the way of salvation. Knowing you is the hope of eternal life. Uh, knowing you is our joy and our righteousness forevermore. And God, we praise you for this, uh, for the knowledge of Christ and knowing uh, Jesus as our Savior and Lord. We know that uh, this is a gift from you too, and we praise you and thank you. We thank you that <clears throat> whenever we want to know Jesus more, we only need to open our Bibles, and there in these pages we find revelation of our Savior and understanding more of the salvation that we have in Christ. And as we open your book, and we pray that, that you would help us to know Christ more this morning, to know Jesus in his suffering, to know him as our high priest, and to, so we might better understand our salvation and the love that you have for us, that we too would respond in loving you in return, that we reflect your image be your salt and light in our world. Equip your church through the preaching of your word, Father. Give us that which we need to live life here on earth for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Good morning, brothers and sisters, again. Uh, just uh, if you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews today. We're going to be back in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, we're going to pick up in Hebrews 4.14 4, through 5.10. Uh, Hebrews 4.14 through 5.10. And you'll notice we're kind of spanning a couple uh, chapters, uh, just uh, but uh, they do flow together. They kind of belong together. Hebrews chapter 4.14. And uh, again, I want to, I know we didn't get a chance to say so uh, earlier, but I want to wish all you uh, moms out there happy Mother's Day. And uh, we appreciate you and hope that you um, are appreciated by those that you love and those that love you. So, I recently had the opportunity to teach our church history class along with Dale and Brian and um, Bill too, and it was a joy to teach that class. It's a really fun class. If you've never taken a church history class, it is very worthwhile, especially as we as I get older and I, I begin to appreciate history. Uh, so many lessons uh, that can learn, so many uh, 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 challenges that the church faces throughout history. And, and uh, yet throughout our, the church history, God preserves his church. God preserves it through the proclamation of Christ, the gospel, and proclaims and through the scriptures that he uh, preserves for, uh, for his church. But uh, I was, re- in particularly, I, was, I had taught on the Reformation, I was re- kind of just reminded recently of how uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches their worshipers to pray to others beside God, besides God. And maybe you come from a Roman Catholic background, you've come out of the background, you may remember those times where certainly you do pray to God, I'm sure, and, but you also at times are very comfortable to pray to others, primarily uh, to Mary. Um, but they also pray to deceased saints. Uh, for instance, you remember Martin Luther, it was that he was caught in a thunderstorm when he, he cried out, help me, St. Anne. He was praying to his, uh, his patron saint, and um, that was the beginning of the change for him. But if you think about it, and you, you actually open your Bibles and you, uh, you search through the Scriptures, 
you do not find that the Bible teaches God's people to pray to the saints. In fact, you look through all the prayers in the Bible, you find that you were to pray to God himself, right? When we pray, we are to pray directed toward God and not to any human being. Even when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he tells us to begin by addressing God directly, our Father who art in heaven. So when we pray, we, when we, whether it's praise, whether it's confession, whether it's thanksgiving or intercession or requests, uh, we, as Protestants who believe in the Bible, pray directly, know that we can pray directly and confidently to God who hears us. And the, but the primary reason for why we have this confidence is because we have a great high priest in Jesus our Lord. It is Jesus as a high priest who offered his life as a payment for our sins so that we might be forgiven through faith in him. And this high priest, after having offered his life as a payment for our sins, rose from the dead and ascended to heaven to the right hand of God the Father, where he is now. And there he intercedes for us still. And so we can approach the throne of God directly, confidently, boldly, not because of anything about ourselves, but because of the one high priest in whom we trust, who is there interceding for us. Our passage today reminds us of the significance of having a great high priest like Jesus. We don't need to look to supernatural beings like angels or superhero saints like Moses to intercede for us. We only need our Savior, Jesus Christ. As you and I better understand today how great a high priest that Jesus is for us, which we will in our passage, we will also at the same time be better equipped to withstand and handle the world's temptations to fall away and encourage and equip us to learn to hold fast to Jesus Christ. This book of Hebrews is written just for that big purpose, to encourage saints who are tempted to fall away, Jewish background saints who are tempted to fall away because of persecution for their faith. They were tempted to fall away from Jesus and go back to their Old Testament ways, to go back to the law, go back to Moses, go back to the sacrifices, the rituals that they had commemorated before. This whole book presents Jesus, though, as the better and superior high priest because he is God's son. He is better than the angels who mediated the Old Testament law to Moses, chapters 1 and 2. He is better than Moses and even his servant Joshua that we saw in chapter 3, verse through 4, 14. And beginning in chapter 4, verse 15, all the way through 10, 18, we're going to learn this main theme of the book, that Jesus is better than even the Levitical priests, including the high priests that represented Israel. And though you and I may not think much of these things, for every Jew in that day, they would have thought all these things to be of high regard, held in high regard, of great importance. 
Their spiritual religion up to before Jesus was, surround, was focused upon Moses and upon the law that was delivered by angels and upon the priesthood that offered sacrifices on their behalf. And today we're going to look about how Jesus, because Jesus is our great high priest, we can have confidence to hold on to our confession we're going to look today at three truths in our passage about our great high priest, three truths about Jesus, really, that encourage us to hold fast to our confession. It's the same running theme uh, that we will see, and uh, it's why well, we need this today, because uh, we live in a world that will, at least seemingly every, with every generation, seems increasingly uh, creative in ways to oppose, the, to oppose God, to deny the things of God. And it, uh, it, it gets harder to be Christians in this world. And so that means that persecution uh, may be coming. And we should always be ready and be prepared so that when the persecution comes, or the ostracism, or the, the loss of jobs, or, the, or the, just the, the threats that you may face, that you will be encouraged to hold on, hold fast to our confession of Jesus. We can hold, and so number one, we're going to learn today about our high priest, that we can hold fast our confession because we have a great high priest, number one, who sympathizes with our weaknesses. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Um, if I could write it, I'd write, we have a great high priest in front of every, every point, but I just don't have enough space, so just please fill it in yourself. Verse 14 through 16, we read this from, the, from uh, chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here we find a statement of the number one reason. We, we have, can hold fast our confession of Jesus because we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Verse 14 really is a, is a statement of the main point of this whole passage. And it could be argued even, if you would like, that Chapter 4, verse 14, is the main verse of the whole letter itself. It's almost a restatement of this main theme of this letter. To the Jewish audience of this letter, the subject of a high priest is of great familiarity to them. The high priest was the spiritual leader of all Israel. It's like the, the Pope to Roman Catholics. He is their spiritual leader, this high priest. There was only one. He was God's chosen instrument to represent Israel before the Lord. And for Israel, God's presence wherever was manifest in a very specific place in the nation of Israel. Inside the Holy of Holies, which was within the temple, and before that, within the tabernacle. And there, God's chosen instrument would enter that place to meet with God. But other than Moses, only one Israelite was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. And that one only once a year. That would be the high priest. He would go in and make atonement for the sons of Israel by offering blood 
not only for his sins, but for the sins of the nation. Once a year. And then he would repeat it the next year. Only he could pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies. There was a veil there. You remember, there's a veil that di- distinguished between the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, and the holy place that's just outside it. And even no one else could go in, could go in the holy, holy place too while he was in that Holy of Holies. Only he could pass through the veil into where God's presence manifests. That's how significant the high priest was for the nation of Israel. And throughout Israel's history, they always had a high priest who, would pass, who could pass through the veil to represent Israel and make atonement annually for their sins on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But the author of Hebrews writes here that we have a great high priest. We have, a, if you will, a greater high priest. We have a great high priest who has not just passed through an earthly veil, but you say who has passed through the heavens into the very presence of God. He is not like the high priest who could only go once a year into God's presence, but he's a great high priest who is continually in God's presence. This great high priest, of course, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So therefore, since believers have a great high priest in Jesus, the Son of God, the author then exhorts us to hold fast our confession, to hold tight, to hold on to our confession. Don't let go. This confession is our confession of Jesus. It's our confession of who we believe Jesus is, what he has done for us. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, we read that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. You see, part of our confession is that we confess that Jesus has been sent to us by God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God sent his Son into the world, and we believe that he's also our high priest and that he himself offered up a sacrifice once for all, for all sins. And we, through faith in him, in that sacrifice, in the one who placed that sacrifice, in the sacrifice itself, which he himself it was, we can be saved. And we are to hold fast because we have this great high priest in Jesus. Now the rest of the passage and the letter and that basically elaborates on this main theme, this great high priesthood of Jesus. Here in particular, emphasis placed on the sympathy, though, of our great high priest in verse 15 and 16. Jesus is able, it says here, to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's not like we have a high priest who doesn't sympathize with our weaknesses. As human beings, under the curse of sin, all of us are beset with various weaknesses, right? And you may not, uh, when it's... Uh, you may not be aware of it, especially if you're in the prime of your life, but you're aware of weaknesses when you're young, and you're aware of your weaknesses when you get older, uh, very much so. But we're beset with weaknesses in our body, but also our soul, the, 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 our sinful nature, our sinful tendency that readily gives in to temptation and sin. We wrestle and struggle with ailments. We are weighed down with temptation. These are the the sum of all our, our weaknesses that mankind faces. And Jesus, our great high priest, sympathizes with us. 
It's as if he says to us, I understand what you're going through. You know, I'm not a real sympathetic guy. I'm just not that way. I'm not built that way. Because I think I'm just kind of, yeah. But Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. You always appreciate those people who have a gift of mercy and compassion. They come along and they, they encourage you. Why? Because they, they, they express to you how they understand in a way that you believe that they understand. But Jesus, our great high priest, he understands. You know, a lot of times we think people don't understand because, well, they, you don't know because you didn't experience what I experienced. But Jesus understands because he has experienced what you've experienced. He is one that we say that he has been tempted in all things as we are. He's, been, he's faced the struggle that you have faced in life. Perhaps not in the specific situation or circumstance, but in the type of temptation that you face, Jesus has experienced it all. Our high, great high priest sympathizes with us. We had already alluded to this. Uh, this was already alluded back to in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, where we read uh, in our call to worship that, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus is able to come to help you in your, in your temptation, in your weaknesses, because he himself suffered the same things. How did he face every kind of temptation? We can explain it this way. 1 John 2.16 describes all the things that are in the world, all the things that are in the, the world system, the sinful world system that is in rebellion to God. He describes in three ways, three attributes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. All of those, if you would categorize sins, you could categorize them really under those three categories. Those are the types of temptations that mankind faces in this world. And Jesus, particularly during his temptation in the wilderness, if you remember, uh, Matthew 4, by Satan after 40 days of, uh, of fasting, Jesus was tempted by, by Satan in these three specific categories. And Jesus resisted them all. But it's not just that while in the wilderness that Jesus faced temptation. Jesus faced temptation all throughout his life where he was human, being, he was human like you and I. But where we are tempted to complain when we face temptation, where we're suffering, we're tempted to lash out, we're tempted to indulge ourselves, we're tempted to, to question, we're tempted to rebel. Jesus, in all his temptation... He never sinned. He was sinless. Jesus is the sinless Son of God. And because of this, it's exactly because he resisted all the kinds of temptations that he faced that he sympathizes with our weakness. Hmm. I know for most of us, we, we find sympathy, especially from someone who went through the same thing we went through. 
So they also failed like I failed. Oh, man, I'm faced, I, I went through this trial and I failed. Oh, but I find comfort for knowing someone else who went through the same thing and failed and, and, you know, as well. But how is it that Jesus, who in a sense never failed in whatever temptation that he faced, even though maybe the same kind of temptation that I faced, how is it that the fact that he never, he, he never failed, how does that make him qualified to, to understand my weakness and to help me? C.S. Lewis explained it this way. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. See, C.S. Lewis is trying to explain that it's because he resisted temptation, because Jesus resisted the temptation, he experienced the full weight of that temptation. When you and I face temptation and we give into it, we didn't experience the full weight of it. We just experienced just enough, just to that point, and then we then gave in. But if we had continued to bear under, we would have felt the greater weight of it as it continues to press upon us and tempt us. Jesus knows the strength of temptation because he resisted it to the utmost. Jesus knows how hard it is in your temptation. He knows how hard it is more than you know how hard it is because we, you and I, we give in to temptation. We fail at times. And he therefore, because he knows how hard it is in your temptation, he sympathizes with your weakness. He understands. And he comes to your aid in the face of temptation. And this is the great high priest that you and I have. A great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. By the way, not just weakness, but it's weaknesses. It's all of them. It's a plural. We have many weaknesses. <laughs> And knowing such, we have such a great high priest, then it gives us confidence. Therefore, we can hold fast him. But therefore, verse 16, we can draw near with confidence. We can go to him in prayer. We can draw near to the throne of grace, to the presence of God, so that we can receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. We don't have to be like the Israelites who were too afraid to even approach Mount Sinai because God's, God's presence was manifest in such a fearful way, and, and they sensed their own sin Because of Jesus, we know that we can approach this throne where God sits. Because there we find, and there we'll find mercy and grace. Because at His right hand is our great High Priest. Number one, we've learned that we can hold fast our confession because we have a great High Priest who sympathizes with our weakness. Secondly, we learn in our passage that we hold fast our confession because we have a great high priest who was selected by God. His choice, he is the choice instrument of God to be our great high priest. Let's read verse 1 to 4, chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people. 
so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Here in verses 1 to 4, the author explains basically the nature of the office of the high priest. This is what the high priest does. In verse 1, we learn that, first of all, the high priest is taken from among men and appointed on behalf of men. Basically, that's saying that he is a representative. The high priest is a representative. He is chosen among men to represent men in things pertaining to God. That is, not only he's a representative who is a mediator between man and God. And as a representative, the high priest offered gifts and sacrifice for sins on behalf of the people. In verse 2 to 3, we learn, also learn that the high priest identifies. He identifies with his fellow men. Because he too is beset with weakness, that is sin. And thus he offers sacrifices for his sins as well as the sins of the people that he represents. Now, so we learn that he is a representative, a representative mediator. He's one who identifies with, um, with the people and being one of them. And lastly, in verse 4, we learn that the high priest isn't something that one can choose to do, but it is an office that one is called by God to do. Just as Aaron was. It's not some job you can just apply to and say, well, I want to be a high priest. I'm going to apply to it and see if I can get the job. No, it's something that God chooses you for. And you have to be of a specific lineage, of the lineage of Aaron, who was a son of, descendant of Levi. So in light of this kind of introduction, this uh, overview of the nature of the office of the high priest, one might wonder, how then is Jesus our high priest? How is Jesus a high priest when, first of all, he was never chosen to be a high priest of Israel? And moreover, he wasn't even a descendant of Aaron. So how can he be a high priest? Verses 5 and 6 reveal how Jesus came to be a high priest. We read this. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice first of all here in this explanation of how Jesus became a high priest, that Jesus is not referred here as Jesus. He's referred to here as Christ, right? So also Christ did not glorify himself. Christ emphasizes that he is the messianic king, right? Christos means Messiah in Hebrew. Uh, so messianic, he is the messianic king. He is the promised ruler who would sit on David's throne forever, this Davidic covenant. He is the Christ. He is the king. Yet even being the king does not, of the king who is descendant of David, that alone does not qualify him to be priest, does it? Recall in Israel's history that kings and priests were, were separate, right? Kings came from the line of David. Priests came from the line of Levi through Aaron. Those are two separate lines. In fact, we know one story when King Saul actually tried to act, a king who tried to act as a priest and offered up sacrifices to God in 1 Samuel 13. What happened to him? He meant well. Samuel, you were late. Someone needed to make the offering. Samuel rebuked him. King Saul lost his kingdom because of it. 
It would be taken away from him and given to another, to David, a man after God's own heart. So how then did Christ, the king, become a high priest? First, so we see that he did not seek the glory himself. He didn't try to get, take it for himself. Like other priests, other high priests, he did not choose the office for himself, but he was appointed to it by God himself. God appointed to him to this office. How do we know that God appointed him to this office? The author of Hebrews tells us that it's because Scripture tells us so. The Bible tells us so. That's a good answer, good Sunday school answer, right? How do we know this to be true? Well, because the Bible tells me so. Okay? And that's what he does. He quotes two Bible passages, two Old Testament texts, to show that God appointed the Christ to be a high priest. Two verses are quoted. The first verse is quote, is a quote, in verse 5 is a quotation of Psalm 2-7. Uh, you are my son, today I begotten you. It was used earlier, if you recall, back in chapter 1, verse 5, to emphasize the sonship of Christ. And that sonship made him greater than the angels. But if you also remember from our study in that, in that passage, Psalm 2-7 is also quoted by the Apostle Paul in Acts 13-33. And there, when Paul quotes Acts 13-33, he says that this vert, Psalm 2-7, was fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. So it is in Christ's resurrection that God demonstrated visibly that Jesus is his Son, is the Son of God. So though Jesus is not the son of Aaron, who would act as the, whose descendants would become high priest to God, Jesus is the son of God. He's something greater than the son of Aaron. He's the son of God who would act as a high priest to God. Now the second verse brings it together. The quote in verse 6 is taken, uh, that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, is taken from Psalm 110. Psalm 110, I, I, if you, uh, I believe, is, among, <coughs> is, is the most quoted psalm in all of the scriptures. It was like Psalm 2, it is also a messianic psalm. It's written about the Messiah. It's understood by, uh, by saints and to be a, represent, to be a, a prophesy, prophecy of the Messiah. It was written by King David. And if you recall Psalm 110, it's significant because it would be... And it's not mentioned here, but it begins with a very familiar phrase. Psalm 110 verse 1 reads this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, you remember the significance of this verse? You know your gospel. Some of you guys have been in the, the, the life of Christ class. You recall that Jesus uses this very verse to teach about his deity. Everyone understood that Psalm 110 is a prophecy of the Messianic king who would be a descendant of David. So how could David, who's writing this, refer to the Messianic king as my Lord when his, this Messiah is supposed to be a descendant of David? The, the Messiah should be calling David my Lord. But no, David calls him my Lord. How can this be? Jesus leaves the question out for the Pharisees who would refuse to give an answer. And the only answer is because the Messiah, the Messianic King, is also the Son of God. That is the only way that David could call his Lord, his, the Messiah, my Lord. 
And how does, I mean, because the Messiah is also the Son of God. And the, how did God declare that Jesus is the Son of God? By his resurrection. And at Christ's resurrection, shortly after his resurrection, he ascended to heaven. And there we read then in Psalm 110 that God told him to sit at his right hand until he would defeat all his enemies and make it a footstool for his feet. In that same passage where God is speaking these verses to the Messianic king after his ascension, we read what we read here in verse 6. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God declares in this verse, in that Psalm Psalm 110, that not only is he going to, you can sit on my right hand, the Messianic king, but you are a priest forever. And so he's not only recognized as a king forever, but he's also a priest forever, right? All priests, if you recall, uh, did not serve forever. All priests died. All, all the high priests, Aaron, beginning with Aaron, died and were replaced by one of their sons. But the risen Christ, risen and seated at the right hand of God the Father, would never die again. He would be a priest that is forever. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 4. God declared it of him. In fact, it's, a, it's the fact that it says you are a priest forever is implies even that prophecy of Christ's resurrection. Or that Christ would never die. Christ is both king and priest forever because, and they can only be king and priest forever because he is the son of God. He's not in the order of Aaron. He is of a different order. We learn here he's the order of Melchizedek. And this is, uh, this is something that is uh, beyond the scope of our sermon today. Melchizedek is a king, the king of Salem, who was uh, would, that king of a town who would eventually be known as Jerusalem. He was the king of that city-state, if you will, who had um, met Abraham after his victory against uh, the, the five kings who had taken away um, Lot. And so, the significance of this order of Melchizedek is actually going to be fully explained in chapter 7. And so, since we're going to see it in such great detail in chapter 7, I'll leave that explanation for another day. But we have enough to understand that Scripture reveals that God selected, God appointed, God prophesied that His Son, the Messianic King, would be a king forever, as well as a priest forever. He is God's choice. He, God chose his son to be a king forever and a priest forever. Therefore, since God had chose him and selected him as our high priest, we can have confidence that God made the right choice, right? If we trust in God, we can hold fast to our confession of him because he is God's choice. To doubt or to question that is to be is a greater sin than to doubt Moses or Aaron like the Israelites did in the wilderness. And remember what happened to them when they questioned and doubted God's chosen instrument then. So we can hold fast our confession. We 
to Jesus because we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, but we also have a great high priest who was selected by God. Lastly, our third and final point, we can hold fast our confession because we have a great high priest who submitted in his suffering. Jesus submitted himself in his suffering. We pick up this in verse 7 to the end of the uh, passage. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. These verses describe Jesus' priestly work on earth. Um, The context indicates the focus, particularly is here, is on Jesus' priestly work in his final week on earth, where he endured suffering, that we call it the Passion Week of Christ. Verse 7 describes how he prayed to God as he faced death. He was facing imminent death. He knew that it was coming close. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane on his final night, there he went to pray. And you remember he prayed fervently and so much so that tears flowed down that like, like, like blood. But what did he pray? He prayed to him, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus in his humanity felt the, temptation, the weight of, the, of, the, of this impending death that was coming upon him, and even more so that the wrath of God that would come because of sin. He asked God the Father, if you're willing, let this pass from me. Let me not die, have to die. Let me not have to suffer. Jesus asked this of God the Father. And then he prays, but yet not my will, but yours be done. He would die an agonizing physical death as he bore the even greater agonizing wrath of God for our sins. And he prays for deliverance from death if the Father is willing, and yet he submits to the Father's will. And God, we read, heard his prayer because of his piety, because of his Godliness, because of his obedience, his, his, his humility, his submission to the Father. And God, though God did not, it was not God's will to deliver him from his, the physical death on the cross, nor even deliver him from the agonizing wrath of God upon the sins that were placed upon him. God answered his prayer by delivering him from death itself. Delivering him from death, that when he, though he died, he did not remain in the grave. For on the third day, he, God ro- ro- raised him from the dead. And so God answered his prayer. But it was, and we learn here that in his servant, verse 8, that even though he was a son, he learned obedience. Jesus learned obedience. He, he learned trusting submission to God. It wasn't mean that he was somehow disobedient. But he learned even more about obedience. He experienced this obedience in his suffering. And what it did is that it prepared him, made him perfect, made him complete, made him be qualified 
to be a high priest who could offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And so that, having done so, those who then learn to obey him, to put our submission and our trust in him, find the source of eternal salvation. The submission of Jesus to his Father's will in his suffering encourages the readers of this letter who were facing similar suffering for their faith. And even though he is God's son, he learned obedience through his, from his suffering. He learned godliness through his suffering. You know, when all you and I suffer, what we often want is we want the suffering to end. And it's, it's, that's normal. It's, even Jesus prays for it. Lord, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. It's okay to pray that. Just remember to pray if you're willing. Because it's really it's determined by whether God is willing or not. We ask God to remove it. We ask God to take us out of it. We ask God to, to fix whatever it is wrong that's broken. And if he's willing, he, he will. But if he's not willing, and sometimes he's not willing to remove that suffering... It's not that God does not love us, but what it is is that God wants us to learn obedient submission to his will. Because eventually you have to learn this. You have to learn this. We all kind of started off. We started doing this when we put our faith in Jesus. We submitted to his will. We believed in his son. But it gets, but we must all learn to submit ourselves to God's will throughout the, throughout the rest of our life. For in life, we, we gain so many things that the circumstances and the, the, just the reality of life eventually means that we will lose them all. And it's in, we must learn how to submit to God in the face of su- the suffering of loss. Because we lose things. All the things, it's, it's like when, when you're a kid, you lose things. You, you lose your favorite toy. Oh, that's the beginning of it. And then as we grow older, we find we lose jobs. We lose family members. We lose homes. We lose our health. We lose the things that are, are, we've gained. And it's in that suffering that we must learn to submit ourselves to the will of God the Father to learn obedience to God, to trust in him, to not be tempted instead to shake our fists at God and say, why are you doing this to me? You're God. You can stop this. I know you can. Why are you doing this? Take it away. Come on. If you don't, I'm not going to worship you anymore. That's the temptation that we face, but we must learn obedience from our suffering. We must learn as Jesus to pray, Father, yet not my will, but yours be done. So for the worshipers of God who are facing suffering in the world today, do not be discouraged in your faith. Resist the tem- you can resist the temptation to fall away or to sin against God. Remember that you have a great high priest who submitted himself to the Father in his suffering. And his suffering was far greater than anything you and I face. But because he suffered, 
He sympathizes with our weakness. Through his suffering, he is the source of our salvation and the example for us to follow in learning submission to the Father in our suffering. And so we can hold fast our confession, our confession of Jesus Christ, because we have in him a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who was selected and appointed by God, and who, was, who submitted himself in his suffering. Hebrews 4.14, 5-10 teaches us that we have a great high priest that has passed through the heavens into the presence of God. And it's because he is there, we can draw near to God always because he is always there. We do not approach through the, uh, through the merits of, of people like Mary, those great, godly as she was, we do not approach the merits of the, of the saints who have excess, uh, excess uh, deep, good deeds. We do not approach him through the merits of any high priest or even your high pastor. Nor do we approach him in, on the merits of our own. We approach the throne of God through the merit of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our great high priest. He is greater than all of them. Later in chapter 7, we'll read these words, and I think it's a good final passage for us. Remind us of what we've just learned. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Amen. Leave you with three questions to just kind of think about this week as you in your small group discussions or in your families. How does the sympathy of Christ uh, for your particular weakness encourage you? And how does Christ's eternal priesthood affect your life? And how does Christ's submission and his suffering help you in your suffering? Let's, with that, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the great high priest, that we have a great high priest who has entered through the heavens and now seated at your right hand. And it's because of him, Lord, that we have this blessing of, of, of confidence that we can approach you anytime, any place, anywhere, Whatever circumstances we face, and in the midst of our suffering, we can come to you. In the, in the midst of our joys, we can come to you. And every time, in every situation in between, we can approach you, Lord, because of Jesus Christ seated at your right hand. Thank you for our high priest forever. Even now, intercedes for us. And Lord, we praise you that because we have such a great high priest who who not only intercedes for us at your right hand, but is one who can sympathize with us in our weakness, who knows what we're going through, who understands our struggles and our trials. Lord, help us to look to Jesus whenever we go through trials. Help us to look to him when we face suffering.
that we would learn from him and know that he is a source of comfort, but he is also an example for us in how we can submit in our suffering and learn obedience to you. For you are truly God, Lord. All things are under your control. There is nothing that is an accident in our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can approach you so confidently because we have a high priest who is there always interceding for us so that he may save us forever as we draw near to you through him. Lord, we praise you for Jesus Christ. Send us forth, Lord, with this understanding of Christ so that we may share it with others. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for Christ whom you sent to be our high priest, offering himself as a sacrifice for our sin. We thank you for your love. We praise the Lord, increase our love for you in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.